wonder if you ever thought about this question here. What's the Bible all about? Now, hopefully, by the end of our Essential 100, every single person connected with Windsor Baptist Church will know what the Bible's all about. But some people think the Bible's all about rules, what we should and shouldn't do. Now, the Bible does have some rules in it, and they show us how life works best. But the Bible isn't primarily about us and what we should be doing. The Bible's about God and what God has done. For other people... We think the Bible's all about heroes. These great characters we've been learning about in our Essential 100 series, people like Noah and Abraham and Jacob, Isaac and Joseph. Now, the Bible does have some heroes in it. But when you read the Bible closely, you soon discover that most of them aren't actually heroes at all. Some of them make big mistakes and sometimes on purpose. And Hebrews 11 is a very famous chapter in the Bible. And in Hebrews 11, it tells the story of many of these so-called heroes of the Bible. And right at the end, actually, right as you come into Hebrews 12, it says, don't fix your eyes on these people. Don't fix your eyes on Abraham or Isaac or Jacob or Joseph. It says, fix your eyes on Jesus Christ, the perfect hero. And the Bible is most of all a story, one big story. It takes the whole Bible to tell the story. And at the center of the story is that perfect hero, Jesus Christ. And somebody has said these words. Every story in the Bible whispers his name. And then they went on to say, he is like the missing piece in a puzzle, the piece that makes all the other pieces fit together. And suddenly you can see a beautiful picture. See, without Jesus, the Bible doesn't make much sense. And tonight we're going to look at a small piece of this one big story. We're going to look at Genesis chapter 46 and 47. And as we look at these chapters, just keep in mind the big picture that we've been thinking about here. So Genesis 46. And just to give you a bit of background, if you're here for the first time, we've been following through the book of Genesis. We start right at the start where God created a perfect world. And obviously it didn't stay perfect for very long. Sin came into the world in the garden. God, God, because he's holy and because he's just, he had to deal with sin. He put Adam and Eve out of the garden. But in that phrase that David gave us, very memorable phrase, even in the garden, there were hints of hope and rumors of redemption, looking forward to Jesus Christ, the one who makes the Bible make sense. And after they were put out of the garden, Sin increased in the world, and God had to send judgment through the flood, and he saved Noah. And after Noah, the next main character in the Old Testament is Abraham. And God gave Abraham three promises through a covenant, three main promises. The promise of a seed that would become a nation, a nation that would have a land, a promised land to live in. And through this nation, all the nations of the world would be blessed. And after Abraham, we thought about his son Isaac. Last week, it was Jacob. And Jacob's beloved son was Joseph. We're going to skip over lots of the chapters about Joseph because that was one of our topics that we looked at before Christmas in our Living the Dream series. And our Living the Dream series we read from chapters 37 through to 45. So we're going to skip over those chapters and we're going to start here tonight at chapter 46. And just to give you a bit of background, Jacob is an old man, or Israel as he's called here at the start of this passage. He's an old man, 130 years old. But after 22 years of believing that his beloved son, Joseph, is dead, he discovers that he's alive. And he's alive in Egypt. So he packs up all his possessions, he puts them in the carts, and he starts on this journey to be reunited with his beloved son, 
Joseph. So let's read from verse 1. So Israel set out with all that was his, and when he reached Beersheba, he offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in a vision at night and said, Jacob, Jacob, here I am, he replied. I am God, the God of your father, he said. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. I will go down to Egypt with you, and I will surely bring you back again. And Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. Then Jacob left Beersheba, and Israel's sons took their father Jacob and their children and their wives in the carts that Pharaoh had sent to transport them. They also took them with their livestock and the possessions they had acquired in Canaan. And Jacob and all his offspring went to Egypt. He took with him to Egypt his sons and grandsons and his daughters and granddaughters and all his offspring. And we'll finish there at verse 7, but keep a Bible in your hand. We're not going to read all of these two chapters, but we'll dip in and look at some different verses as we work through this passage tonight. Now, we have a phrase, an idiom in our English language, which talks about when the penny drops. And what that phrase really means is if you're trying to wrestle with something, maybe some sort of concept, some sort of problem, you might have this light bulb moment. And the light bulb moment is when the penny drops. When all of a sudden, you suddenly understand it. When everything makes sense. Maybe it's something you should have understood a long time ago. But when the penny drops, you've suddenly got it. And Roy mentioned earlier in the interview that I used to be a primary school teacher. And one technique you use when you're teaching children, or in fact, when you're teaching anybody, is the use of repetition. So when you're trying to explain a concept, or teach something new, You'll keep repeating it. You'll go over it time and time and time again. Now, why do you do that? Because you realize that if you explain something once, most of the people won't get it. And so you keep explaining it until the penny drops and they've suddenly got it. And when the penny does drop, you don't stop there. You keep repeating it. Maybe you might come back to it a week later or two weeks later or a year later. And the reason you do that is because even when the penny drops, after maybe about a day or two, it can go again. And so it's good to repeat it until the penny drops again, until they finally grasp that. And if you've been listening to our sermons over the past number of weeks, you might have actually picked up up on a bit of repetition. A bit of repetition that comes through sermon after sermon. And it's not that we're imposing them into the Bible. It's a theme that comes up time and time again. And as we work our way through the book of Genesis, we come across these promises that God made. And time and time again, we see that God is a faithful God. That our God is a God who keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. And constantly through the book of Genesis, he restates these promises. This covenant he made with Abraham, he just didn't say it once. He repeated it to Abraham a number of times. And then he repeats it a number of times to Isaac. And then to Jacob. And so it continues on and on and on throughout the Old Testament. And he reminds these people, not only are these the promises, but he's the God who's going to keep the promises. Now why does he do that? I think it's this teaching technique. He keeps reinstating it, or re- repeating it, until the penny drops. Until they've got it. Until they believe him. Until they put their trust in him. That he's the God who will keep his promises. And when he takes these characters into new places and the new situations and when the human fears rise up amongst them, they need to have got this concept that God is a God who keeps his promises. 
But what about you? And what about me? As we're here tonight, the 20th of February 2011, has the penny dropped for us yet? Have we got this? That our God is a faithful God. That God is a God who keeps his promises. Let's have a closer look at the passage here. And let's look again at verse 1 of chapter 46. So Israel set out with all that was his. And when he reached Beersheba, he offered sacrifices to God, the God of his father, Isaac. Jacob or Israel sets out, packs up everything in his carts, and he comes to Beersheba. Now this is an important place. This is an important place for his family. Many years before, his grandfather Abraham had come to this very spot. And in this spot, he'd called on the name of the Lord. And then his own father, Isaac, had come to Beersheba as well. And there in Beersheba, he had built an altar, an altar to God. And that's where Jacob stops. And at this altar, he makes some sacrifices. He acknowledges his own sin, and he worships God. And at this place, he has an encounter, because at night time, God comes and speaks to him. And he gives what we call a double call. Look at verse 2. And God spoke to Israel in a vision at night and said... Jacob, Jacob. Now, Roy's sitting right in front of me here. Now, at the end, imagine Roy was talking to somebody. He was doing something else, maybe packing up the computer. And if I wanted to get Roy's attention, I'd probably just say, Roy. But if I had something really important and urgent to communicate to Roy, I might go, Roy, Roy, and say his name twice. And when he hears his name twice, I'd hope he'd turn around and give me some attention. But when you hear your name repeated twice, it usually stresses there's going to be something important communicated to me. And a number of places in the Bible you'll actually find one of these double calls where God speaks and he uses the name twice. Now if God speaks to you and uses your name once, you think you'd sit up and listen. But when he repeats it twice, you know there's something important. The first double call in the Bible happened with his grandfather Abraham. A story that we thought about a few weeks ago. When Abraham was told told to sacrifice his own son Isaac and he had him tied up on the altar and he raised the knife and he was going to kill his own son and God called out and he said, Abraham, Abraham. In other words, I have something important to tell you. I provided another sacrifice instead. And many years later, a young boy called Samuel was lying in his bed and God spoke to him and he said, Samuel, Samuel. In other words, I have something important to say to you, something important for your nation. And many, many years after that, a man called Saul of Tarsus was on a road and he was heading to Damascus. And he was heading there to persecute and kill the Christians. Until Jesus Christ himself spoke to him from heaven and said, Saul, Saul, I have something important to say to you. And so when you see this name, double call here, Jacob, Jacob, you know there's something important about to be said. So let's read verses 3 and 4, the words that God communicated to him. I am God, the God of your father, he said. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. I will go down to Egypt with you, and I will surely bring you back. And Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. As I mentioned earlier in the introduction, just before we read chapter 46, many years before God had made a covenant, given some promises to Jacob's grandfather Abraham, And basically the three promises are these. The first one he said was, I'm going to make you into a nation. You're going to have descendants. Loads and loads of descendants, impossible to count. And they're going to be my special people. Because they're going to be my special people, I'm going to give them a land to live in. 
the promised land, the land of Canaan, as the Old Testament tells us. And from your nation, from your seed, it's going to be a blessing. And all the peoples on the earth are going to be blessed through you. And here in these words that God speaks to Jacob, he actually repeats and reconfirms two of the promises. He says, I'm going to take you down to Egypt. And see, in Egypt, I'm going to make you into this great nation. And then one day, I'm going to bring you back. And I'm going to bring you back into this promised land. You're living in the promised land at the moment. I'm going to take you out of it. But I will keep that promise. And I'll bring you back into the land. Now, there's no mention in this passage here of the third, of the third promise, the blessing. But this third promise is dependent on the first two. If there's no descendants of Abraham, if there's no nation, they're not living in this land, the third promise of the blessing will never happen. And so it's dependent on God keeping his promise with the first two. So let's think about the first promise in particular, that promise of a nation. When God gave the promise to Abraham, he took him outside and he showed him the stars in the night sky and he said, count them. Because that's impossible to do. See, God knows how many stars are in the night sky, but for a human being, it's impossible to count. What was the point God was making? See your descendants? See this nation I'm going to give you? There's going to be so many of them. No human being could possibly count them. Now, Abraham had one son, Isaac. Well, he actually had more than one son, but the Bible tells us there's one son of the promise, Isaac. Now, one son. It's not much of a nation, is it? And when he grew up, he had... Two children, twins, Jacob and Esau. But again, the Bible in the book of Romans tells us that only one of those sons, Jacob, was a son of the promise. One child. It's not much of a nation. But we read from verses 1 to 7. And uh, after 1 to 7, it starts into a genealogy. Now, let's be honest. Genealogies must be one of the dullest parts of the Bible, if you're able to say that. Imagine yourself in your own quiet time. You come to a genealogy. What's your gut reaction? Maybe I'll just skip over this bit, this list of names. It's probably not that important. Well, here we have a genealogy. And all the genealogies are important. They might, at first of all, seem dull, but God doesn't make mistakes when he writes the Bible. And there's a significance behind them all. And if you read through this genealogy, I'm not going to do it this evening because I'm careful in case some of you do drift off as I read through this list of names and I'm not sure I'll be able to pronounce them all but as we read through this genealogy something stands out it's just a list of son after son after son after son after son and God is making the point and it's proof that God is keeping his promise yes the family might have started small with just one but son after son after son is proof that God is slowly keeping this promise and turning this family and making them into a nation. There's 70 who are mentioned here. Now, there would have been more than 70 because it doesn't really mention their wives. There's only a couple of females, so there would have been more. But it's around about 70. Now, it's not like the stars in the night sky because you can't actually physically count them. And not only count them, you can name them here. But slowly God is keeping the promise and he says in verse 4 to Jacob, I'm going to take you down to Egypt. And in Egypt, that's where I'll really keep this promise. That's where I'll turn this small group of 70 into a mighty nation. And if we jump forward in the Bible 400 years to the next big event in the Bible, the Exodus, God takes these people, this family of Abraham, out of Egypt. And by that time, there's approximately one million people. 
And what's the point? The point is that God is keeping his promise and he's given Abraham this nation. And God keeps his promises in the most difficult of human circumstances. Think about Abraham. His wife was barren, couldn't have a child. She was in her 90s. That's like your great, great grandmother. Seems impossible. But God was able to give a child and he kept his promise. And we pick up in this story here with Jacob. The whole family is under threat because there's a famine in the land. And when there's famine, people die. And this group of 70 are under threat. They could all die out here and that could be the end of God's promise. But God's in control because God keeps his promises. And he has a saviour, Joseph, in the right place at the right time to save this nation because God keeps his promises. Nothing can stop him. I wonder, has the penny dropped with us yet? That God keeps his promises. And God is still keeping this promise. He's still keeping this promise of a nation. And he's keeping it through Jesus Christ, a descendant of Abraham. Let's have a look at this verse from the book of Galatians. It says, Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Understand then, those who have faith, faith in one of Abraham's descendants, Jesus Christ. Those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ are actually children of Abraham. You see, there's a nation, a biological nation of Abraham, people who were born from his seed, the nation of Israel. But the Bible talks about new birth, and there's a spiritual nation as well, children of a new covenant through Jesus Christ. And if you're a Christian here this evening, you're part of that promise that God gave to Abraham. If you've put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you're like your father Abraham, a man who was known in the Bible as somebody who put their faith in God, put their faith in the God of the promises. And God still continues to keep his promises today. And when we go out in evangelism, that's what we're doing. We're sharing, we're encouraging people to put their faith in Jesus Christ, the one who makes the Bible make sense. And when people put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, they become children, not only of Abraham, but children of God, become part of his family. And sometimes we're involved in evangelism, we get very discouraged, can't we? We look at all the human obstacles, people who aren't interested, all the circumstances in people's lives which might hold them back from putting their faith in Jesus Christ. But what the story of these characters in the Old Testament teaches us is that nothing get in the way of God. Nothing can stop him. Now that doesn't mean that everybody will become a Christian. But even in the unlikeliest circumstances, nothing can stop God. God will keep his promises. And he'll still be bringing children onto himself. See, our God is a God who keeps his promises. But let's have a think about the second promise and that of land. I wonder if you recognize one of these. The Rubik's Cube, and if you knew the name of it, it might suggest that you grew up in the 1980s when this was one of the iconic toys. I had one of these as a child, and uh, they're still about because somebody bought me one for Christmas this year, and I still can't do it. Well, I used to be able to do it when I was a child, but I've forgotten the technique. And there is a technique to do it. Basically, what you want to do is match up all the colours. You've got all the blues on one side, all the reds on another, and greens on another side. And there's a certain technique. When you know the technique, it's quite simple. But I can remember back in my childhood days, spending hours upon hours trying to solve the Rubik's Cube problem. 
And my technique wasn't very successful because what I used to do, I used to think pick a colour like red and thought I'll get all the reds on the same side and so I would flick them around and try and match them up. And then when I got all the reds on one side, I think, right, I've got the reds, let's turn my attention to the blues and I'll try and get all the blues. And I would turn all the pieces until I got the blues on this side. And then I'd go and have a look to see what the reds look like. And it all been moved. As you move the blues into place, it knocked all the reds out of their place. And it's all out of sync. And a little bit like that, I think, Joseph, that might have been going through Joseph's mind. Because he had a problem. Joseph, or not Joseph, Jacob was living in the land of Canaan. And God was telling him actually move from the promised land and go and live in Egypt instead. And it seemed that the commands of God were out of sync with the promises of God. And I'm sure Jacob could have felt like saying, you've got it wrong, God. Egypt is the wrong place. That's not the place where I should be living. But God gives him some reassurance. And he tells him, not to be afraid, which suggests that he obviously was afraid. See, Jacob was an old man, and nobody likes moving, packing up all their stuff and moving when they're old. And his father Isaac had actually been warned before him not to go down to Egypt. He had been forbidden to go down and look for food when there was a famine. And I'm sure he thought to himself, is this the right thing to do? Is this the right thing to leave the promised land and to go somewhere else. And God reassures him in this passage. Look at verse 3. He starts off by saying, I am God. That's all you need to know. If I'm telling you to go, and I am God, that should be reassurance enough. And then he says, I'm the God of your father. I was the God of your father, Isaac. Did I ever let him down? Did I ever break the promises that I give to him? You can trust me, because I'm God, and I'm the God of your father. And he says, you must realize that this sounds strange to him. But he says, I will make you a great nation in Egypt. There's a purpose to this. Although this might make sense to you, I've got a plan. I am in control. And then he gives this brilliant promise. He says, I will go down to Egypt with you. You're leaving the promised land. You're going somewhere different. You're going somewhere new. But here's the best thing you need. I'm going to go with you. And you're never in the wrong place when God is with you. Isn't that a wonderful promise? A wonderful promise, I'm sure, that encouraged him. And it did encourage him because verse 5 tells us that Jacob left. And he left the promised land and he headed down to the land of Egypt. I heard the story once of a teacher who was teaching an RE class. And he was trying to get across the concept of what faith was. And so he stood at the front of his class with a chair and he decided to go with a classic illustration. I said, class, I want to show you what faith is. And he sat on the chair and the chair collapsed to the ground. Now you can imagine what the class were doing. They were laughing their heads off at that situation. And when the, child, the class had sort of recovered themselves and stopped laughing, the teacher stood up and he said, now I'm going to teach you the second lesson. And this is the important lesson. And the important thing is what your faith is placed in. See, everybody's got faith. Everybody in the world has faith. Maybe faith in their own abilities. Maybe in their money or their talents or their contacts, a spiritual leader. Everybody's got faith in something. That's not the important thing. The important thing is the object of your faith. Is your object of your faith trustworthy? 
Can you depend on it? Is it going to let you down? And see, when we think about God, not only did God make these promises, but God is faithful because he's eternally trustworthy. When God makes a promise, he will never let it down. He's proved it. Read the pages of scripture, page after page after page after page, he's making this point. You can trust me. I'm internally trustworthy. Every promise I have made, I have kept. And there are many, many people here tonight who come and stand at this microphone and you can testify to that truth. That through your Christian life, through the hard times, through the good times, through all the different situations, as you've moved about, God has been completely trustworthy. He's somebody we can put our faith in because God keeps his promises. And this great promise, I will be with you, is not just for Jacob. It's a promise that's repeated time and time and time again throughout Scripture. And if you're a Christian here tonight, that's a promise that God gives you. No matter where you go, I will be with you. If he says to you, pack up your stuff like Jacob and go somewhere else in the world, he says, I will go with you. If he says to you, stay here and get involved in these situations and you're afraid of it, you're not sure how things are going to work out, no matter what circumstance you're in, God says, I'll be with you. I'll go there with you. And you can trust me. Because I'm eternally trustworthy. And the temptation is when we're struggling. Remember we're struggling in our school, or our workplace, in our family. And we're thinking, I'm on my own. This is tough. This is tough living as a Christian in this situation. God says, I'm going to go there with you. And you can trust me. Because I will never, ever let you down. And he gives them this assurance at the end of verse 4. He says, I will surely bring you back again into the promised land. He doesn't say, I will bring you back. He stresses the point. He says, I will surely bring you back. That's a promise. That's a future event. And he talks about it with certainty. And God knows, and God can speak on certain terms because he knows the future and because he's in control of it. Move back with me in the Bible to Genesis 15. Genesis 15 and verse 13. These are striking words. These are words that were given to Abraham many, many years before. And just think about the very specific nature of this promise. So Genesis 15 and verse 13. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, And they will be enslaved and ill-treated 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves. And afterwards they will come out with great possessions. Does that sound familiar? Did that actually happen? God said that would happen hundreds and hundreds of years before the people went down to Egypt and were slaves there for 400 years. Now how did God know? Because God is in control. Because he is God. And so when God makes a promise, can we trust him? Of course we can. Because he's in control. And he's faithful in everything he does. And that promise was fulfilled. Jacob did come back to the land. It was fulfilled when actually he died in Genesis 50. His sons brought him back and they buried him. But ultimately it was fulfilled for his nation 400 years later. In that great exodus when God took the people out of Egypt, through the Red Sea, and into the promised land. And what does it prove? It proves that our God is a God who keeps his promises. Has the penny dropped yet? Do you trust him on that? Well, let's look at the final 
promise that he made to Abraham and his family. That of a blessing. And God spoke to Abraham and he said, Through you, through your family, all peoples on the earth will be blessed. And right at the end of the chapter 46, we have a very emotional scene. It's a scene where Jacob is finally reunited with his son Joseph. So let's read Genesis 46 and verse 28 through to 30. Now Jacob sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to get directions to Goshen. When they arrived in the region of Goshen, Joseph had his chariot made ready and went to Goshen to meet his father Israel. As soon as Joseph appeared before him, he threw his arms round his father and wept for a long time. Israel said to Joseph, Now I am ready to die, since I have seen for myself that you are still alive. And here we have one of those fantastic human moments. It would be a great scene to have captured on video as Jacob is reunited after 22 years with his long-lost son. He says, I'm ready to die. What does that mean? There's nothing else in my life that I want to do. Everything I've dreamed of my life has happened, and so I'm ready to go. And then we move into chapter 47. And in 47, Joseph introduces his father to Pharaoh. And we have a fantastic scene. It makes me smile when I think about this scene. Because Pharaoh was the most powerful man in the world at this stage. At the moment we have the G8. G8 is a conference where the eight most powerful leaders in the world meet together. In Joseph's time, it was G1. There was only one powerful ruler and Pharaoh was the man. So imagine the scene. He's sitting in his palace with all his regalia on. And Joseph comes in with his father. An old man, 130 years old, a shepherd. So you can imagine what he was wearing. And these two, the most powerful man in the world, this old man, are introduced. And what happens next? He, the old man, Jacob, blesses the most powerful man in the world. Let's read these verses. Verses 7 through to 10 of chapter 47. Then Joseph brought his father Jacob in and presented him before Pharaoh. After Jacob blessed Pharaoh, Pharaoh asked him, How old are you? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The years of my pilgrimage are 130. My years have been few and difficult, and they are not equal to the years of the pilgrimage of my fathers. Then Jacob blessed Pharaoh again and went out from his presence. And here already, here's God's people starting to bless the nations. And it's a very simple way. Jacob blessing one man, the most powerful man in the world. But in a greater way, God was already using Joseph to bless not just Pharaoh, but an entire nation, the land of Egypt. Come down with me in chapter 47 to verse 13. There was no food, however, in the whole region because the famine was severe. Both Egypt and Canaan wasted away because of the famine. Joseph collected all the money that was to be found in Egypt and Canaan in payment for the grain they were buying, and he brought it into Pharaoh's palace. When the money of the people of Egypt and Canaan was gone, all Egypt came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? Our money is used up. Then bring your livestock, said Joseph. I will sell you food in exchange for your livestock, since your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and he gave them food in exchange for their horses, their sheep, their goats, their cattle and donkeys. And he brought them through that year with food in exchange for their livestock. And so it goes on, and it tells us what happened year after year. There was no food in the land. The famine was severe. And the people were starting to die. And what did they need? They needed a saviour. They needed somebody to rescue them. And God had this great plan. And he had Joseph in the right place at the right time 
to bless this nation, Egypt. And when the money ran out, they brought their animals. Joseph took the animals and gave them food in exchange. The next year, they had no animals to exchange. So he said, give me your land. And they exchanged the land and he gave them back food. And the year after that, they had absolutely nothing. So Joseph gave them back the land. He said, this belongs to Pharaoh, but you can work it. And after you've worked it, what I want you to do, and these are some of the verses we haven't read, he said, I want you to take one-fifth, 20%. It's a bit like a tax, and you give it to us. 20% of the crop that grows on the land, and you can keep the 80% that's left. Now, some of you sitting here wish you only had to pay 20% when it came to tax. But he introduced this tax system to keep the people alive. Now, when politicians introduce taxes, they never become very popular. If there's one way for your popularity ratings to soar downwards, it's introduce a new tax. And Joseph introduced a new tax, but it didn't affect his, affect his popularity. In fact, he became popular. And why did he become popular? Look at verse 25. The people come to Joseph and they say these words, You have saved our lives. That's a great exchange, isn't it? Take our land, take our animals, take our money. We'll gladly give you that in exchange for our lives. And he was used to save this nation. And through Joseph, they received deliverance and blessing. But the Bible speaks of a greater Joseph. Somebody else from Abraham's seed. Jesus Christ, the one who gives the Bible all his meaning. A greater saviour than Joseph. One who would come and bring a greater blessing. Jesus himself taught, man shall not live by bread alone. Joseph came to give them physical bread to keep them alive. But Christ realized that there was a greater deliverance. We had spiritual needs. And that's why he came into the world and he died on the cross. And when Jesus was dying on the cross, he was coming to be the greatest saviour. To take our place. To take our punishment. And when he was dying on the cross, that's what God was doing. He was taking all our sins, all the wrong things we did, all the things that keep us out of a holy heaven. And he was placing on his beloved son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ was dying in our place so we could receive the ultimate blessing. That through faith in him, we could receive that ultimate blessing of our sins forgiven and being reunited with God himself. And there's no cost. There's no 20% tax involved in this. The Egyptians were happy with paying 20%, but Jesus thought something different. He said, repent and believe the good news. Repent, turn. Turn from the wrong you're doing and turn to me. Believe, put your faith. That's what you have to do. There's no cost involved. It's by grace you're saved by faith and not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. Martin Luther, the reformer, described that as the great exchange. Our sins for his righteousness. And that's what happened on the cross. Our sins were placed on Jesus Christ. And his righteousness, his perfectness, is placed in us in exchange when we put our faith in that great Savior, Jesus Christ. And so when God in heaven looks upon us, he doesn't see our sins but he sees Christ's righteousness that's placed in us, exchanged in us instead. That's a blessing that we don't deserve. And after Jesus rose again from the dead, he gathered his disciples and he gave them that great commission. He sent them out into the world. And what did he say to them? He said, go into all the world and preach, teach, share the good news. To who? To all the nations. To all the people. Be a blessing to all of the nations. And every Christian who sits here tonight, thousands of miles away from the promised land in Canaan, if you're a Christian tonight, 
You're here because of you've received that blessing. That the good news of the gospel has come to you and changed your lives. And as we send missionaries out from this church, that's what we're doing. We're sending them out to be used by God to be a blessing to the nations and to communicate the great news of the gospel. And when we give and when we pray, when we support these missionaries, we're joining with, with them to be a blessing to the nations. And when you're in school tomorrow and you chat to one of your school friends about Christ, or you're in work and you stand at the water cooler and you're sharing the gospel or talking to a neighbor, that's what you're doing. God is using you to be a blessing to the nations. That people's lives can be changed and transformed through Jesus Christ. And this promise of a blessing to the nations looks forward to one great day. One great day in the future. And just as we finish, can you turn with me to the book of Revelation? Revelation chapter 7. These are wonderful words. Revelation chapter 7 and verse 9. And this is obviously John given a vision of what will happen in the future in heaven. It says these words. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. Does that sound familiar? What did God say to Abraham? Look at the stars. Can't count them. And here in heaven is a multitude of people that no one can count from every nation, tribe, people and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb they were wearing white robes and holding palm branches in their hands and they cried out in a loud voice salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, that's Christ himself that's a great day in the future That's a day to look forward. That's where this promise will really come to fruition. When all these people from all around the world, every tribe, tongue and nation, gather together through Jesus Christ. The blessing to the nations. Will we all be there? I trust we will be. And as we finish this evening, as we think about these lessons that we learn through the book of Genesis, I hope that we're all encouraged. We're encouraged by the fact that God keeps his promises and that God can be trusted and if you're not a Christian here tonight you can trust God I hope you've learned that that God can be trusted he says you want to be one of my followers you've got to love me with all your heart your soul your mind your strength you've got to give me all your life and the reality is you can trust God with all your life because he's a faithful God a God who never breaks his promises a God who will save you and a God who will keep you You can trust God. And if you're a Christian here tonight, we have that great assurance, that great assurance that God gave to Jacob. I will be with you. No matter what situation you find yourself in life, no matter the struggles that you're going through at the moment, be encouraged by this. God says, I will be with you. And God keeps his promises. I wonder this evening, has the penny dropped? Has the penny dropped with you that our God is a faithful God? God keeps his promises.